Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. On this week's PreserveCast, take a step back in time to the 18th century as we talk with Tim Ware about his book, Maryland in the French and Indian War. Tim will talk to us about where his interest in American history started, why he decided to write this book, and the importance of the French and Indian War to Maryland and beyond. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. And today we're excited to be talking with author and historian Tim Ware. And we're going to be talking all about his new book, Maryland in the French and Indian War, which, you know, I think Maryland gets a lot of attention, obviously, deservedly so, to uh, what happened here during the Civil War um, and perhaps even our role in the American Revolution. Um, but as you go back even further to the 1750s, um, there's often not as much attention given. And so uh, this new book shines a spotlight on that and the French and Indian War in general. Um, and so we're excited to be talking with us. We love to just sit down with authors from time to time. And so, Tim, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what was sort of your your spark for history. OK, well, thank you for having me, Nick. Um, so I actually I grew up uh, just outside of Martinsburg, West Virginia. Um, at a little place called Swan Pond. And what really got me interested in history was I just, my family is big into like family history. So we started with that. And then my love for history just took off. Um, and then I took in, like, I went to Shepherd University, have a, a bachelor's degree in history. And then I got my master's just a couple of years ago, um, which is kind of where this book came from, um, because it is, it, it started out as my master's thesis. Um, and then as I completed the thesis, the professor read it over and said with some a few changes, maybe some additions here and there, um, it might make a, a good book. Um, so I kind of just went with it and it was published in February of uh, 2023. And now we're here. Um, so, yeah, um, like what what really like my first job that really got me into wanting to write something like this um, was at Fort Frederick State Park. Uh, I started there uh, the summer after I graduated college in 2011. I was there for a summer. I left um, for the private sector for four or five years. Um, and then fortunately, because of just my mentality, I needed to do history. I was able to go back and I was there for three years. And it was probably one of my favorite jobs that I ever had because it's really like a hands-on history. So you kind of get to live. It's a living history museum. You kind of get to live the, as much as you can as the soldiers did at Fort Frederick. You get like eat, cook their food. sew because you need to sew clothing from time to time. And the fun part was firing the weapons. Um, so yeah, that's what really got me into wanting to write this book. So let's let's talk about the French and Indian War. I mean, for a lot of people, um, it, it might be, you know, if you're not spending a lot of time on this or someone's listening who um, is either overseas or they live in another part of the country where this isn't as as present, uh, we'll kind of lay the give the lay of the land as and get 
drill in deeper to places like Fort Frederick and kind of put that on the map. But why don't you kind of give us the the global and then the American overview of what is the French and Indian War? When does it happen? What sets it off? And and what is the what, what's sort of the story of what's happening there? All right. So the French and Indian War sprouts from a series of what you want to call them colonial wars that take place in the late 17th and into the early 18th century. Um, and these colonial wars are largely just like periphery kind of deals from larger European wars taking place, like the War of Spanish Succession, the War of Austrian Succession. Um, and those wars have different names in North America, of course. Uh, one of them, like it's escaping me now, but one's called Queen Anne's War, um, King George's War, and so on. So the idea is in North America, the obviously Great Britain and France are rivals in Europe, and they're also rivals in North America. So these colonial wars, these two sides are constantly fighting over who controls which part of North America. Most of the these wars take place in um, what's today New England, uh, Lower Canada, Canada around Quebec, and those areas. Um, and both sides. Like they're fighting for control of North America, but they're also allying themselves with the natives, uh, Native Americans in the region, the Iroquois, uh, the Delaware, uh, Shawnee, and so on. And they're really like if you control North America, they're, they're using it. One side is using it to enrich themselves. Well, both sides are using it to enrich themselves. But one side wants the land, uh, Great Britain, and the other side kind of just wants to use it as an opportunity to make money, France. Um, and then when the, what happens is by the 1750s, there's just this all this bottled up tension in North America. And both sides really begin to focus on the Ohio River Valley, specifically one uh, point, the forks of the Ohio to present day Pittsburgh. And the idea is whoever controls that point on the Ohio River, where the, Ohio, the Allegheny Monongahela come together to form the Ohio controls practically the entire eastern portion of North America because the Ohio flows into the Mississippi, Mississippi into the Gulf, and so on. Um, and at this point in the early 1750s, both sides are really laying claim to it. Um, France in particular has probably the strongest claim um, because they have sent explorers down the Allegheny, um, exploring the region, LaSalle, and so on. And they've laid claim. And in 1753, there's actually a I wouldn't say like a war party, but a mili an expedition um, sent down the Allegheny where they're going to put lead plates at certain points. Um, and they're going to basically lay claim for King Louis and France and so on. Um, and the thing is, like England, like Great Britain, when they lay claim to it, they lay claim to the land itself. And France, their idea is with these lead plates is if you control the Allegheny, for example, the Allegheny River in uh, western New York, western Pennsylvania, you also control all the tributaries that flow into it. So that's the creeks, the street, everything. Wherever those creeks and streams begin is where their claims end. So if you look at a map of like the Ohio River Valley, it's it's pretty massive. Um, so just by sinking these plates at like the mouths of all these different creeks along the Allegheny, um, they lay claim to everything. And at one point, they actually do begin to push uh British traders who are in the region out. Um, and that's where by 1754, you know, so, if somebody fires a weapon on the frontiers of Western Pennsylvania, Virginia, Maryland, something is going to like happen globally. 
And that's exactly what happens. In 1754, you have a young Virginian, George Washington, sent out um, with an expedition to basically kick the French out, take claim of the Forks of the Ohio. Um, and what happens is there's an incident at Jumondo Glen. Um, there's disputes who fired the first shot and so on. But that is like the beginnings of what becomes known as the French and Indian War for us. Um, the larger war itself is known as the Seven Years War in Europe. Um, for us, it, it lasts from about 1754 to by 1760, 1761. It's really starting to wrap up in North America, but the war itself doesn't officially end until 1763 um, when France decides they like they can't handle anymore. And they basically, in a peace treaty, give up all of their claims in North America. Well, that is a that is actually a really great summary. You've obviously done this before. <laughs> That's a good, very understandable summary of the French and Indian War, which is can kind of be confusing. I am curious, just sort of like a weird little side note. Did they actually place the lead plates and are the lead plates still there? So they did place them. I think there is one surviving example and I can't for the life of me. Rem- I've, there's a picture of it. Um, it's actually translated and everything. Um, I can't remember for the life of me where it's at. It might be at the was it the Heinz Center in Pittsburgh? Very I mean, cool. It, it might be there. It's it, I know there, it's floating around somewhere. A picture of it. Um, so yeah, it's I think there was sixteen or seventeen total, and it's the only surviving one that they found um, anywhere. So you you paint the picture of how the powder keg kind of explodes, and it explodes in what is today Pittsburgh. How how does Maryland play into this? So. Give us a sense for what is going on in Maryland, perhaps at the at the time of the war, who is the, the the governor and what's going on in Maryland and how is this going to impact Maryland? So Maryland is kind of they're in a weird spot. So when Maryland is when the Calverts are given their charter, Maryland has very set boundaries, whereas like Pennsylvania and Virginia, they lay claim to pretty much everything west of them. Maryland gets cut off, I believe, to the west where the headwaters of the Potomac, I think the south branch of the Potomac begins. So the the way you see Maryland today is theoretically, if you were to put it in a colonial map, is how they would view it. Um, it Maryland really hasn't changed, like the boundary hasn't changed a whole lot since colonial times. But in 1753, there is a new colonial governor, Horatio Sharp. Um, he shows up in August when all of this is starting to uh, unravel out to the west. Um, Because Virginia is really adamant about having the forks of the Ohio. Um, So Sharp, his first thing really when he shows up is to settle a border dispute between Pennsylvania and Maryland. That's one of the big things. Um, And he's doing this the entire time uh, during the war. And then eventually it ends with what's called, we know today as the Mason-Dixon line. Um, So he's kind of enmeshed in this border dispute with Pennsylvania and literally within weeks of him taking over as the governor, he gets a letter from Virginia's governor, Robert Dinwiddie, to say, hey, come help me. The French are causing trouble out west and we need we need some assistance in uh, Virginia. So Sharp approaches the assembly and they offer to give some help. Not It's, it's really not a whole lot. Um, there's I believe there are some Marylanders that go west, but not many um, in 1754 with Washington. Um, when the war breaks out, that's when really everything really starts to, in Maryland, come together. Sharp, he is, he's a military, he, he's a former British Marine. Um, so he has a, a military mind. He knows what he needs to do. But when it comes to 
putting that what he knows in his mind he needs to do into action. Um, he runs into the lower house of the Maryland Assembly. Um, Maryland is a proprietorship. So uh, Governor Sharp is actually as governor, he runs the day to day business of the colony with the uh, legislature. But he also has a boss to answer to. And his whole the whole purpose of his job is basically to make his boss money. So that's where Maryland really, I wouldn't say has trouble getting things, participating in the war, getting things started. Um, but it becomes one of the big contentions during the war between Sharp and the legislature because the money's got to come from somewhere and they got to figure out where it's going to come from to help pay for it. What is it that they actually end up having to pay for? What is it that Maryland is going to do? How does this war impact Maryland? Because you've got Pennsylvania, you've got Virginia. Give us a sense of where the battles are taking place. And are there any in Maryland? How does Sharp Sharp have to respond? Right. So like there's no when we, when we like there's no like set piece battles um, in Maryland. It's more of like native French allied natives coming into onto the Maryland frontiers and basically burning settlements, um, taking captives, scalping, like anything to cause just terror on the frontier. Um, there are in like in Pennsylvania and Virginia, you have like more Pennsylvania, you have like the set piece battles in Maryland. It's more of just like raiding parties, but these raids do enough to unsettle those who live on the frontier. Um, the Frederick County, uh, citizens actually send a petition to Sharp, um, and at this time, Frederick County includes all of basically what is Western Maryland, and they're asking Sharp to help us. So what Sharp is going to do is he calls out the militia, um, which is the citizen, like a citizen army for the colony. Each county has a militia, so he calls out the militia to help patrol the frontiers, and he also approaches the assembly to help to raise some money to put together a, what he calls a group of rangers and to build a series of stockade forts on the frontier to help protect Maryland itself. Um, and these stockade, the stockade forts are more or less just, he's given money to people who have substantial houses and they basically stockade their house. So it's, you can kind of think of it as like a citizen's fort. Um, there is one, like specifically built by the colony, Fort Tanalaway in, uh, well, near present day Hancock. I'm not, we're not really sure where near Hancock it is. Um, I know, I think recently there was some archaeological stuff uh, done up there trying to find it. Um, but Fort Tanalaway in Hancock is probably the, the first substantial fort built by Maryland to help defend its frontier. And then you have a series of these citizen sports uh, like Fort Mills, um, Fort Baker. Uh, Hager, Jonathan Hager, actually, he commands a militia company. I think he also stockaded his home. Uh, and there's there's like two more um, all out. They're past what's present day, most of them. Um, present day Clear Spring. And these forts allow, they're within, say, a, a day's, maybe a half a day's distance from each other. So it may, it's very easy for a group of 10 to 20 militiamen, rangers to move from point A to point B, um, just to patrol the countryside, see if what's going on. Um, if there's any Native Americans in the area, they can uh, push them out if they need to. Uh, most of the time, though, when it comes to these attacks in Maryland, it's more they're reacting to them. They're not being proactive and just happen to like be out on patrol running into them. 
Um, and I think the farthest east, I think there were attacks uh, just outside of Frederick. Um, there was a an account of a it's like one or two Native Americans broke into a home and they were ransacking the place when the occupants came back and they were run off. Um, and I think they did take one captive with them who just happened to stumble upon them. Um, but yeah, I think the closest like East, the attacks went was uh, just outside of Frederick. I um, mean, there's attacks like this all over the place. Uh, there's one at Antietam Furtis where the families unfortunately um, actually killed by this, the natives as they raid the settlement. Um, and the only survivor was, I believe, a daughter or a son who was actually away from the family at the time and came back and found them. So the, the, the war itself, in the early part at least, is more of Maryland reacting to these Native Americans attacking um, the settlements on their frontiers. And are the Native Americans, they're, they're aligned on both sides. And so the ones that you're describing are French-aligned natives? Yes. So these French-aligned natives, yes, they're the, the Delaware um, and the Shawnee and then various tribes from lower Canada and the Midwest. And the thing is, like the Delaware, they are, these are the Lenape Delaware. They're native to eastern Pennsylvania, western Maryland. Um, that's their ancestral state, like home, if you want to think of it that way. And their idea is they're aligned with the French. And now they have this opportunity because just while France and England, all these tensions are building up in North America, the Delaware and other native tribes are specifically in the British colonies of Pennsylvania, Virginia, and so on. Um, they're actually losing their lands. They're either being bought purchased, which is they come to a deal and they purchase it, or probably the most, excuse me, infamous one is the walking purchase in Pennsylvania, where there is essentially an agreement where the the Delaware will give the Pennsylvanians as much land as a man can walk in a day. And what happens is the negotiators for Pennsylvania, I believe it's one of the pens, hires one or two runners, essentially, to basically run as far as they can in a day. And what happens is a lot of Delaware land is purchased by Pennsylvania because of that agreement. And the Delaware aren't very happy about it. Um, but they reluctantly move further and further west. And then you also have on the the Iroquois, the Iroquois nations up in uh, New York, New England. They are kind of playing both sides. Um, early on, they're staying out of it. But the Delaware are considered to be, they were conquered by the Iroquois. And the Iroquois view them as in native customs. Once you're conquered, you're viewed as like a woman. So you have like no rights, no say, anything like that in native culture. So the Delaware are losing their lands to the British and the Iroquois are basically putting their thumb on them, letting them not do anything. So the Delaware, with the French assistance, see this as an opportunity to take back at least some of the lands that they had lost previously. Fascinating. And so there's, you know, it really all of these different pieces kind of come together. So how does the you talked about the early part of the war in Maryland and in your book, how does it kind of progress? How does the war kind of conclude in Maryland and and how does that shape the way that Maryland will respond to future conflicts like the American Revolution? So 
earlier in the war, you have these stockaded forts. And what when everything really changes is after, is in 1755, 1756, um, Sharp, for a brief moment, he actually commands all of the colonial forces in North America for like maybe four to five months. Sharp is in command of everything. He is promoted to lieutenant colonel, what they call lieutenant colonel of the West Indies. Um, and his job is to build this force to go capture the French fort, Fort Duquesne, which is at the forks of the Ohio. Um, and 1755, Sharp, he's commander in chief for a brief moment. He loses it to Edward Braddock. And then once Braddock in 1755 marches west, um, he faces his defeat at the Battle of Monongahela in July of 1755. And that's when everything really changes. Um, the attacks really ramp up because um, after Braddock's defeat, the British army essentially retreats all the way to Philadelphia and leaves the entire mid-Atlantic frontier undefended against these raids. So that's where Sharp comes in. He calls out the militia, raises some rangers, um, a company of rangers in 1755. But it really takes off 1756. Um, there's this big, they call it a supply bill. Um, it's 40,000 pounds sterling, which in today's money is just over $9 million. They are going to debate this back and forth this is where this the two sides come at uh, loggerheads, if you want to, if you will. Um, Sharp he has to protect the proprietor's money. The assembly needs the money to give Sharp what he wants, so they're they're back and forth arguing about this. Eventually, they come to a compromise. Um, they are going to basically put some money up, raise some money, take some money from the proprietor, and then some of it's going to be on credit from previous bills that they haven't used. And that's where they are going to build Fort Frederick, um, the large stone fort um, just outside of present-day Clear Spring. Um, it, it is at the foot of North, what they call the North Mountain today. It's Fairview Mountain. Um, and that is that spot was chosen because it is the farthest west that the legislatures agreed was actually Maryland. Um, because they're even with all of the disputes Pennsylvania and Virginia have about borders and Western claims, even though Maryland had substantial claims to what's today Western Maryland, um, there were still questions about where the actual borders were. Um, so Sharp wanted to put it farther west, and where he wanted to put it actually turned out to be Virginia eventually. Um, so yeah, he builds this a large fort, stone fort, um, Fort Frederick. It is large enough to house 200 men, has two barracks for 100 men each. Um, in emergencies, it could be 300 men, and it is going to have four cannons on each bastion. So the bastions are the corners that stick out um, from the square. And to once to raise the fund, the to get troops for this, he is basically going to form what is essentially a professional army for Maryland. He's going to create five companies eventually. Um, hopefully each company will have about a hundred men. I think in total, they were just around between the five companies, 450, 475, somewhere in there. Um, so only, uh, only three of them actually got up to full strength and they are going to be based out of Fort Frederick and out of Fort Cumberland, which is a Royal Fort built farther West, um, in today, uh, Cumberland, Maryland. Um, and that's where most of Maryland's I guess, in, if you want to say involvement, like all the stuff happening west, that's where it's going to come from, Fort Cumberland, because um, you have a company of Marylanders out there, a company of Virginians, um, and they're going to collaborate 
and go out range against the native scouting parties and so on farther west. Um, but Fort Frederick itself is going to be the backbone for the defense of the frontier. Um, it's large, like I said, large stone fort and those settler forts, if we'll stockaded forts uh, um, that I talked about earlier, like Fort Mills, Fort Baker, they're going to be kind of like the spoke. If you look at a map, Fort Frederick's in the center and these little settler forts are like the spokes on a wheel. Um, so these ranging parties will leave Fort Frederick and they'll from just travel from stockade fort, stockade fort, stockade fort, so on um, to protect um, the frontiers. And it's, it's at this time also that Tenalaway is actually abandoned um, once Fort Frederick's built. And so all of this sets up Maryland. Then the war comes to a conclusion in the 1760s. But these places and Fort Frederick in particular are still there when the American Revolution. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So like the, the war wraps up about 1760, 61. Um, Maryland actually. So you have Forbes expedition in 17, late 1758. And once that's um, over with, they capture Fort Duquesne. The lower house of the assembly is like, we're done. No more money, nothing. And they actually disband. Uh, Maryland disbands its forces for uh, in 1759, over a period of time, 1759 into 1760s. And essentially, the fort is given to this fort surgeon for safekeeping. Um, and then after the war, there is a brief um, Native American uprising in 1762-63, Pontiac's Rebellion. Um, the fort's reopened, but not as a military fort, more as a shelter um, against the native raids that are happening again. Um, and then after, as the war, as we progress through the 1760s and into the 1770s, Maryland isn't really, I would say, like just like all the other colonies, this, the colonists, they're not, they're happy that Great Britain won the war, but they really, their anger really starts when Great Britain comes back and says, well, we've just conquered all this land. We need just to now pay for an army to protect you from these Native Americans off to the West and also to help pay for the war. We just helped you win. So that's when they get the tax bills, when they really start getting angry about their relationship with uh, Great Britain. And by the 17th, mid 1770s, Sharp is still well, Sharp, by 1772, he's left. He's no longer the governor. But he can see, while he's still governor um, during the 1760s or before he leaves, that there's this slow swell starting to grow of colonists viewing Great Britain as this tyrannical, specifically the king and the uh, parliament, this tyrannical entity that is keeping them from their rights because they want to, like everybody else, there's all this land to the West that is now open um, and they want to settle it. And they also don't want to pay taxes for something that they themselves help win. Um, yeah. So like, but the funny thing is though, of all the colonies who went into the war, most of the colonies had to go into debt to help pay for the war. Maryland was, they were because they were so adamant about one only spending enough money as needed and two spending it correctly. They actually came out of the war with no debt, like that forty thousand pound supply bill that they they passed actually had a like with, written within it like it had to be paid back. Any credit had to be paid back within five years. 
So by the end of the war, all this debt is paid off. They're like, Maryland is debt free. So now this anger is now coming from tax bills that, hey, like we we paid our part. We have we owe nothing to you. So like, why are you making us pay for these bills? Um, and that's what's really going to happen by 17. What was it 17? You have the Boston Tea Party and Annapolis has its own Boston Tea Party. Um, so there's the tax on tea. So the Peggy Stewart, there's this tax on tea. There's this uh, trader merchant who has warehouses in Annapolis and he's storing this tea. Um, and what happens is he is threatened, like, you need to get rid of this tea because we're not paying taxes on it. So they give him the option to either destroy it himself or they would destroy it. So he takes up, takes them up, says, I'll, I'll, I'll burn it. Um, so there's a painting. It's in the, the archives. It's called the, the Burning of the Peggy Stewart. The captain, Anthony Stewart, actually sets fire to his own boat in Annapolis. It's the Annapolis Tea Party, if you want to call it that. Um, and all the tea on his boat is just completely destroyed. So you really can draw this straight line from the French and Indian straight through to the American Revolution. And, and, and here in Maryland, you can see that. I'm curious. So people can pick up your book. We'll have a link in the show notes. You can grab it on Amazon. You can get it at a local bookstore, wherever you want. It's available right now. Um, it, are, what are you working on next? I mean, it seems like the next stop is Amer- uh, Maryland and the American Revolution. Is that is that where, what we can expect? That That has crossed my mind. Um, and I told my, I told my wife after I wrote this, like, I'm never doing this again. Um, cause writing a book is really stressful, um, when you, because of deadlines and whatnot, but yeah, I might go towards, uh, Maryland and the American revolution. Um, or my, I did have, give this idea pitched to me nursing in the, the American civil war. Um, and I know somebody who, uh, wants to help me write it. I just have to convince her to do it. Um, but yeah, so somewhere I don't don't really have anything on the immediate horizon, but eventually probably it'll be one of the revolution or the nursing in the civil war. It's like a completely different topic, but yeah, it's yeah. So if people are interested in in learning more about the French and Indian War in Maryland. Obviously, they pick up your book, but um, are there places you recommend that they would go as well? So I would suggest it is probably one of Maryland's hidden gems is to visit Fort Frederick State Park. Um, They cover the history of primarily the French and Indian War. Um, They have daily programming through the summer. Uh, you, You can go, you can learn how to build a fire using flint and steel um, the way they did. Um, you can see the foods that were cooked. Um, but Maryland, the, the unique thing about Fort Frederick is it actually has life at three different points. So it's a French and Indian war fort. It's a military fort. During the American Revolution, it's actually a prisoner of war camp um, for prisoners from Saratoga and eventually Yorktown. Um, and then in the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps actually comes out and rebuilds the fort as you see it today. Um, so it has three different time periods that they they interpret. Um, but yeah, if you really want to learn about like the French Indian War in Maryland, um, visit Fort Frederick State Park. Um, they, like I said, daily programming, and they do have. If you really want to get immersed in that 18th century lifestyle, in the spring they have what's the, the 18th century market fair. So you can go. If, you, if it fancies you, you can go buy 18th century clothing, try it on. Um, and then normally at the end of August, they have 
um, what they call the French and Indian War muster. It's kind of a battle reenactment. So you can, there was no battle at Fort Frederick, but you can got to get a sense of the tactics that would have been used um, by both sides um, for however brief a moment you can, you can catch it. Uh, so yeah, so that's where I would suggest going. Just visit Fort Frederick State Park. Um, it's probably, I'm in Hagerstown. It's about 30 minutes, 20, 25, 30 minutes west of Hagerstown. Um, right off, it's right off Interstate 70, so it's not hard to miss. And the last question we ask everyone, what's your favorite historic place or site? So I actually, I don't have a favorite. I'll give you my top three, I guess. Um, so obviously Fort Frederick is going to be on there because I work there and it, it's a fun place to just visit. Um, you have the, my second one would be probably South Mountain State Battlefield in Maryland outside of Boonesboro. Um, because most of like, depending on where you visit on the battlefield, it's a lot of it looks just as it did in 1862 um, during the battle. Um, and it, it's away from people. It's away from everything. It's on the mountain. It's surprisingly quiet. And so it's just a place you can go and reflect. And then probably the last one would be um, it's the Konikajig Institute. And in, it's outside of Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. It, it's a, they do like outside of like nature programming and whatnot, the historical programming focuses on life on the Pennsylvania frontier during this time period. Um, and they have a, it's a, a rebuilt log cabin, a, an 18th century tavern that was actually moved from its original site to their, um, site. Um, so you can kind of get a feel what a tavern may have felt like in the 18th century. And they also, um, do periodic, I believe they haven't done it in the last couple of years, but they called it the terror on the Conica jig about the French Indian war on the Pennsylvania frontier and so on. So those are the three, like probably my three favorite um, sites to visit. And obviously I'm so busy, I never really get to go visit them much. So when I get a chance to go visit them, it's a, it's a treat. Well, that's a great place to, to end this conversation. We appreciate having you on and we'll make sure that there's links in the show notes if people want to pick up the book. Um, Maryland in the French and Indian War. We've been talking with author and historian Tim Ware. Thanks for joining us today, Tim. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.